On this week's episode, we discuss our chronic illness journeys. We also talk about how having Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome has framed our worldviews and our ideas of life. We talk about survivor's guilt, life, death, and much more. So stay tuned because this will be a ride. <laughs> Rare with flair. <laughs> yup. You can say that again, girl. I'll let you go because that's. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rare with Flair. Two 20 somethings with the same rare disease out here living our best lives. I am your host, Casey. And I'm your host, Cassandra. Casey and I just introed this like a second ago and we literally both said hello. So we're both excited to I be here. I need to leave it in though, I feel. Like, they need to hear that I just made a huge mistake. It was fun. I liked it so a lot. Funny. Um, Casey, I just wanted to tell you about something that I was excited about. Tell, oh, tell away, tell away. So, you know I'm a big fan of Selena Gomez. Of course. Of course, who isn't? I know, right? She's such a queen. Um, She has this new beauty line because anyone who's anyone has a beauty line called rare beauty and it made me think of us yes i have heard i've heard of rare beauty and when my mom heard about it she was like that is your makeup line (laughs) like that is the makeup line for this (laughs) podcast have you tried it i have so it's i the first time i bought foundation it was too dark but i just got a new one that is my shade but I don't have it yet, so I'm really excited to try it. But their sponge and their matte lip is so nice. Okay. I'm excited to try that, though, one day. Like, I do want to try it out. I've heard good things. And, you know, we're not Spawn, but we love a good yeah. makeup with the word rare. And Selena is a – she's also a chronic illness warrior, so we love her. Yeah. And, um, a, and an organ transplantee. Woo. Yes. She had – was it a kidney transplant? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so speaking of chronic illness, I just, you know, amazing segues all around. I love how, oh, like, yeah. our beginning conversations never have anything to do with the episode, but somehow we make it work every time. We really spin it. <laughs> we, Anyways, um, so today we are going to talk about our chronic illness journeys. Cassandra and I both have the same rare disease called Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome, and we completely explain it in our first episode. So if you haven't listened to episode one, go check that out. I have HPS type three and Cassandra has HPS type one, which I think will be important in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, it does actually matter. And it's interesting because uh, while we do have a good amount in common, we even noticed while talking about this, our experiences, especially throughout childhood, are pretty different. And you'll see why. This episode might get a little monologue-y, but stay tuned. We promise that the monologues are good. <laughs> yes, we think they're pretty juicy. <laughs> if we, but then again, we're a little biased of our own stories here. But like, they are pretty. I know. They are pretty wild rides. Let's just say that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we were born, um, <laughs> and we were born, and. We were born, what, five-ish years apart, but it's interesting because I was diagnosed almost at birth, but Casey was not. So 
HPS is extremely common in Puerto Rican populations because of gene pool. Um, my parents are both from Puerto Rico. They came to the United States and it's kind of obvious when you have, when you're brown and you don't have a brown baby. So, um, <laughs> they, the doctors definitely knew that I had albinism because I was so fair and had white hair and everything. So as we were leaving the hospital, we went to go see the pediatric ophthalmologist, you know, eye doctors. But right before they went in, there was this geneticist who stopped them and he had the presence of mind. Maybe he read it in a textbook somewhere that HPS is like the Puerto Rican disease and handed them a pamphlet in like, what, 1997. So still not the age of information <laughs> that we're in. No. But saying that, you know, albinism in a Puerto Rican person can signal a different condition. So they were like, okay, I guess we'll get tested. And so finally, when I was eight months old, I got diagnosed with HPS. So I, my parents and I have known pretty much my whole life that I've had HPS. Yes. And that's not the case with you, right? Right. No. And that's incredibly rare for a rare disease. Like she said, it is Mm -hmm. more common in Puerto Rico. So that was a factor, but I'm white and my family is pretty fair skinned anyway. So when I was born, Mm -hmm. I looked normal. And also, um, you know, we have to specify again that there are a lot of different types of albinism and I have more pigment than a lot of the people with really white hair. So when I was born, we had no idea anything was wrong. I was sent home and then Two months later, I went to an ophthalmologist appointment, and that's when they diagnosed me with albinism through looking at my eyes. Um, A lot of different things are wrong with our eyes, so they could look at my eyes and say, she has albinism. But they diagnosed me by looking at me with ocular albinism, which just means, oh, you have albinism, but it only affects your eyes because you have pigment in your hair and skin. So that's what I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed with. I was not diagnosed with Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome, unfortunately, (laughs) at that time. Yeah. And that is sadly extremely common among lots of people with rare diseases. Like, it's really hard to tell early on unless you pretty much fit the entire description, which was me. Um, <laughs> but, but that's also really common among the HPS community that are Caucasian. It's hard to get diagnosed when you're young. Yeah, absolutely. So growing up, though, I think that knowledge really made a difference in our childhoods Like, growing up, my parents knew that I had a bleeding disorder. And if you go back and listen to our last episode, you'll know kind of how I was as a kid. I was, like, super hyper, rambunctious, and I would, like, run around and trip on things, and I'd skin my knee, and I'd have a lot of bruises. But it made sense because I had a bleeding disorder, and we knew that. My parents were prepared that when I lost a tooth, they would have a tea bag because that helps cauterize bleeding. And they had all the right things to help stop any sort of bleeding. But that was mainly it. And we had the knowledge that I had this disorder. And so it wasn't a surprise to us. Then, like, the vision component, which we talked a lot about in our last episode. What about you? Right. So I, my childhood was, yeah, I didn't know I had a bleeding disorder. So I was covered in bruises, literally covered. And it got to the point where, like, it looked weird. It looked like I there was whispers that I was, like, being abused, which is horrible to even say. Like, I feel uncomfortable even saying that because I was not abused in my childhood at all. And I wasn't even that rambunctious. Like, I wasn't even, like, running into a lot of things. So it didn't make any sense for me to have bruises. I was, like, I had probably 30 mm-hmm. bruises on my legs, like, at any given time. And it just looked wow. really weird. 
And my mom asked my pediatrician about HPS. She had read it in a textbook because the internet was just not like a thing back then. And she had read it about it in a textbook and knew it was a bleeding thing. So she asked and he ran a few tests, but he didn't know what he was doing. And, you know, this was back in the day. But I also like, you know, if this is TMI to some people, I'm sorry. Nothing medical is TMI to Cassandra and I. But also like when I hit puberty and had a period, I, you know, was bleeding a lot. And I also had an ovarian cyst rupture. And that's also a pretty common thing to happen to women. Um, But I had a lot of blood left over in my abdomen. And even the doctor was making comments that it was like an abnormal amount of blood left over. But, you know, we just didn't know. So looking back at those things now, I can see how I bled more. But I just didn't know back then. Yeah, I'm actually among one of like the really, really few HPSers that doesn't really have any abnormal periods. Like my periods are extremely normal. So I, I'm I'm grateful, but I do have a lot of other things to make up for it. <laughs> oh, you have a lot of other things to make up for it, yes. And I guess it's time where we can kind of get into that. We both have these, like, wild stories, and so you can go first on your monologue here. Okay. <laughs> this may take ten minutes, but I'm going to do my best to make it an interesting ten minutes. <laughs> It will be. Trust me. I've heard it, guys. It is. <laughs> I made reference to this in other episodes past saying I had a lot of medical issues. Well, here we go. So in episode one, when we talk about HPS, I mentioned that HPS can affect your intestines. IBD is inflammatory bowel disease, which just means that your intestines will get swollen and inflamed, which sounds painful, probably because it is. But That also means that because, like, your intestines are sort of stretched out more than they should be because they're swollen, they're subject to developing ulcers and, like, kind of cuts inside and bad things. Those cuts, a lot of times, can cause bleeding in in normal people without bleeding disorders. Mm -hmm. But I have a bleeding disorder, and that sort of set up the perfect storm, which I'm about to get into, so... In 2011, I was a freshman in high school, and I was starting to have some kind of confusing symptoms. I was really constipated, and we didn't know why. And so going to the pediatrician after this was persisting for a bit, they said, eat more fiber. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But that's actually kind of the opposite of what you want to do, because fiber is not good for a swollen colon. So we had no idea, though. And... After lots of months of trying to do different stuff, it wasn't getting any better. It was getting much worse, and we kept pushing to see a a gastroenterologist, a GI. And finally, when we could, it was around the time that I turned 15, I finally got a colonoscopy that diagnosed me with Crohn's disease. During that colonoscopy, they had to take biopsies or skin samples from my colon, and that will usually make people bleed, and since my colon was already kind of not doing great it set it up such that I actually hemorrhaged so you know obviously really scary but we after some transfusions we were like okay well we're gonna put you on this medication that's going to help the inflammation in your colon ideally go down and that sort of worked for the next few years things were kind of touch and go I was trying to do my best in high school and 
probably every year, though, I would go to the hospital for, like, a week. But, you know, it was, like, doable. Um, But it kind of culminated in the spring of my senior year of high school. In 2015, things were not going well, and they did another scope, and they saw that I had, like, a bazillion ulcers in my colon. And they said, well, clearly this medication is not working. So they decided to try something new, but my colon was not ready for something new. And between trying lots of new medications and a lot of other factors, I quickly downspiraled. And I just ended up from about March through May, I didn't have a life. Um, I was in constant pain. I always had to go to the bathroom. I was always tired. I could barely keep food down. And it was just, like, exhausting. And I also lacked motivation because I was so tired. So I spent most of those three months, like, laying around in bed. And I really tried my best to do, have my senior year. But, like, honestly, it was kind of impossible and not really worth it, in my opinion. If you want to read more about a lot of that time, I have written a personal blog post a few years ago on my personal blog that I'll link in the show notes. Um, But by the time we hit May, I had been like, I spent May like in and out of three different hospitals. I got out pretty much in time for high school graduation, but like, I've always been kind of tall and I don't know, I have kind of the athletic build. I'm not very curvy, but I'm like tall and lean and... In high school, I was somewhere around 130 to 140 pounds, but by the time I graduated high school, I was, like, 108 pounds, and it was, like, I couldn't stand at graduation. They kind of pushed me in a wheelchair, and I, like, didn't know what was going on anyway because I was on so many drugs, so, like, um, Mm -hmm. it was obviously really difficult, but um, the couple things I wanted to mention also were, like, I'd always been told that my case was really mild to moderate. And my doctors always thought that like, oh, with the proper medication, you'll be okay. But by the time it was May, I like still have this note on my phone where I had written down a bunch of like angry concerns that I was yelling at my doctor. And I'm like, if I'm so mild to moderate, why don't I have a life anymore? Mm. And they were like, well, just, you know, give it time. But you know, if, if you're going through something medical and you're not having your needs met, you need to push your doctors and find a way for them to Mm. understand that you're not doing okay. The other thing was that I think it's kind of really taboo to talk about surgery in some IBD spaces. I think that a lot of people, it's always like, oh, it's a last resort. Um, you can't go back from that. And like, it's super permanent. And you know, you don't really want that anyway. It's going to change your whole life. And mm-hmm. and also, I don't know, you don't really know that you're at your end until, like, you're really at your end. Your mind will go into survival mode. And you'll keep trying stuff. But I think what really made it for me, though, was that some nurses had come in to talk to me about the procedure, about getting my colon removed. And they made it so casual and funny they were like, yeah, we'll just, like, slap a bag on there. It's no big deal. Like, it's just, it was, Aww. it was so comforting to me as, like, a 17-year-old yeah. that I was like, oh, well, hey, that's not so bad, I guess. And I had also talked to someone that was around my age that got the procedure done, 
And she was like, I can eat anything. And I was like, anything? Because all I can eat is ensure. And I'm really freaking tired of it. So, um, after, like, a few more weeks, after I had graduated high school, I had a really rough night in the hospital. And I kind of just came to the realization of, I... I'm tired of being alive in this capacity. Like, I don't remember, like, who I am or what I like to do. And I don't think I can do this anymore. So if surgery is going to at least give me something better than this, I have to try it because I'm sick of this. So after, like, after the operation finally happened, um, I feel like a lot of people who get this done experienced a wide range of emotions but I woke up and I saw this like little blob on me and I knew that like I would never see the right corner of my abdomen ever again but I was just so excited because I knew that like my pain it wasn't going to be this endless pain I had suffered through for the past several months it was going to be like Mm -hmm. the post-op pain that I could deal with and I think the last thing that I had wanted to say was the what made it super worthwhile was that I was, you know, 17 and I wasn't sure what I was, like, I'd never met anyone with my, with the thing I had now, but I wanted to be, like, involved with it. I, I wanted it to be my friend, and so I named her Celeste, and when they came and changed the, the appliance, when I, like, when they first had to do it, they were trying to do it for me, and I was like, no, 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 I'm blind, I have to know what's going on, so I have to touch it. So, like, I was like, please, get off. Let me let me do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I also found a couple girls on YouTube who were, like, around their 20s. And they would make it fun. And they had their cute bikinis and their bag. And they'd make jokes about it. And they mm. gave, like, travel tips. And, like, that just made me feel so much less alone. That when, you know, as soon as I was almost 18, I could feel like I could go into my adult life with a life again so yeah that's my that's my story in a nutshell yes Yes, I remember when you went through that because I had already met Cassandra and I remember just like you know seeing that whole journey for you and being really worried for you but then also being really excited for you when you finally did get the surgery so and I love rehearing the story because I didn't even know like all of those details so yeah, so when you were 18, you also did went through something medical. Yes, well, yeah, a big, like, me- part of my medical journey also happened my senior year when I was 17, like, almost 18. And so I, you know, like I said, growing up, I bruised a lot, and I always just felt like there was something missing. Like, I felt there was something a doctor was missing. I, when I hit puberty, I got really bad, like chronic fatigue and chronic pain. And I had stomach Mm -hmm. issues as well. Nothing even remotely on the level of Cassandra, but, um, and you know, not necessarily all of that is related to HPS. I have some other like autoimmune stuff as well, but I just, I remember like in middle school, my teachers were always questioning me, like, why are you falling asleep in class? Or why are you missing school so much? And I never had any kind of diagnosis. So I didn't have I didn't know what the reasoning was of why I was more sick than the other kids. Mm-hmm. And when I was 17, almost 18, I was really, really obsessed with this channel called Discovery Health, which it's now the Oprah Winfrey Network. It doesn't <laughs> even exist anymore. 
But it was this channel with all of these medical shows, like untold stories of the ER and all this stuff. And I was so into it, which is like, I think it was like a God thing because I have never before or since watched those kind of medical shows. Like, I don't know what (laughs) made me watch them, but there was this show called Mystery Diagnosis. And it was about these people who had this rare disease and they didn't know what was going on with them. And they, at the end of the show, they get their diagnosis. And I watched it from the first episode. I literally remember, like, when it premiered, I would watch it every week. Like, don't ask me why. It's Like, I would never watch that now. Like, I'm grossed out by medical – not grossed out, but, like, I'm just, like, I don't – I have enough medical in my life. I don't need it anymore. <laughs> but anyway, I was watching it, and one of the episodes was about this woman named Karen who had albinism, just like me. And I knew I had albinism at the time. But she had all these other issues, like bleeding issues and even stomach and lung issues. And I – like told my mom about it and I said mom have I been tested for this and she said oh yeah when you were young you were tested for it but I made her sit down and watch the episode with me again and we decided to call the doctor from the tv show this literally sounds like a crazy story that's not even real it's weird (laughs) that this even happened but we called the doctor from the show he talked to us for a long time very very nice man and we got the correct test um I I did my blood you know sent off my blood because not many people in America test for this and I I kind of just knew I had it I just had this feeling I I like very much knew that I had it and I came home one day from school and my mom said we got the results back and you have it and I went upstairs and like laid in my bed and I I cried I felt so alone I didn't even know what this was and I knew like I had this my whole life so nothing was going to change overnight but it was just like this weird isolating feeling um and I told a few of my friends and like they were supportive, as supportive as high schoolers could be, but I just don't think they, like, got it, mm-hmm. and I was like, no, this is kind of a big deal. This disease is, like, not great, and they, like, <laughs> didn't really understand, and, um, you know, we'll talk a little later about conferences and stuff, but luckily, I did eventually find my community, but at the, mm-hmm. but at the beginning, it kind of rocked my world, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot to take in really suddenly. Yeah, and you told me you had some, like, friend your friends in high school just, Right, you know. so I didn't really tell anyone the gravity of the situation because, like I said, I had first gotten diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was, like, 15, and by the time I was 18, I had already gotten my colon removed. So it's just so hard to tell people what's going on when you're 16. Like, you barely know yourself what's going on and how to how to actualize it, but... So I didn't really tell many people, and I think when graduation rolled around and people actually realized how bad I was doing, I think they were a little scared and a little surprised. Yeah, no, seriously. But I mean, I don't. If I think, if I think about doing it again, I don't think I'd still tell a lot of people just because, like you said, I don't know if a 16, 17 year old could handle that information it's a lot for people to take in and it's we can't expect people to understand it at that age it's tough (laughs) it's tough to handle at any age but but we have conference which is super important yes I I will say like the very first conference I went to it was the best week weekend of my life I have pictures from it and I'm just smiling ear to ear 2011 so I got diagnosed October of 2010 and I went to conference March of 2011 so it was like a good it was like six months after I gotten diagnosed and I felt like I had found my family for the first time I felt like I had found Mm -hmm. like the missing piece in my life because I just never had much community with the albinism community before this but I will say I was telling Cassandra my first conference I went to it was amazing like I said but it was also really 
overwhelming and it gave me anxiety because it is really deep and and kind of dark at times a lot of people are talking about very life and death situations and I didn't know much about the disease now I know the disease like the back of my hand but I didn't know much Mm -hmm. about it when I first went and it was very like it was just so much to take in you're like thrown all this information at once so you know I do feel especially for like first-time parents and people like that going to their first conferences because it can be overwhelming and and our conferences are kind of a lot since they're really medical I think it's it's different than any other conference I've ever been to because people mm-hmm. are so close and you you laugh a lot and then you also like cry and mourn a lot and like it's just emotionally yeah, draining <laughs> and there's doctors everywhere and you're like giving samples like oh, blood yeah. samples and urine samples it's and it's just like it feels like yeah it's a trip and like now it's like my home I'm like so used to it now but the first time I like I had a bit of a panic attack actually like the first night um like and I don't even use that word those words lightly like I genuinely had to like leave the room at one point because I was just like this is a little much yeah. for me yeah no it's tough it's funny though like we'll have to do an episode on conference itself just because it's a it's such a thing but we should I just love like it's it's like a different world because people are like fangirling over doctors like who does that we do (laughs) okay okay when you say people you mean you absolutely i love our gi he's lovely Cassandra cracks me up. She's like, hold on, Casey, I gotta go get a picture with this dog. I mean, I fangirl too, but you, like, are hilarious well, so, with like, your pictures. You're like, I've gotta get a picture. The, especially the GI, like, during a lot of the, the time that I have mentioned previously where things were super unsure, he was there and he would answer my, like, my parents' mm-hmm. emails within, like, an hour. Like, it was amazing to have that level of community um, even with mm. like medical professionals, which is just so neat. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I'll it have is. to. I'll have to put a picture of me with a doctor in the show notes. Yes. Well, we also wanted to touch on mental health because, like, mental health is another mm-hmm. part of health, and I I have a lot of mental health in my family, a lot of mental health issues in my family. Um, and so I think a lot of my stuff is genetic. I think I just am naturally like an anxious person, but I will say like preparing for this episode, I was really thinking a lot about how a lot of my anxiety is directly tied to my health. And I think it's because when I was diagnosed so late in life with something I've always had, it felt really jarring to me and my health my whole life has always been really like up and down there have been random things that just go wrong in the blink Mm -hmm. of an eye and so I feel like I can never trust my own body and and I'm kind of a control freak so I feel like I'm never in control and when things are going well I'm always just kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop Mm -hmm. and I think getting diagnosed with HPS was like a large version of that of like a shoe like really dropping like in my life yeah that's a lot um it's interesting how a lot of your concerns are about your, like, health future. A lot of mine are about my health past. So, obviously, like, everything I just explained in my whole, like, IBD Crohn story, which is not over, actually. You know, I I still deal with symptoms of Crohn's disease today. Um, they're not mm-hmm. as drastic mm-hmm. as they ever were, of course. Um, but, you know, I'm still on medication for it. So, it is chronic. Um, but a lot of... I don't know, you don't watch your life flash before your eyes multiple times and come out unscathed. So I have since like pursued 
treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, honestly, it's been super helpful, but it's it's not, like, something that ever, like, fully goes away. And, like, I'm, I'm super grateful for where I'm at right now. But it was, it's been pretty, it was tough. Like, honestly, I can say that. Um, so, yeah. And it's just been super healing to be able to, even doing this podcast is really healing. Um, I think after everything happened, I knew I needed to talk about it. So, like, for the first couple years afterward, it was, like, I was, like, maybe oversharing. I, I, like, was super into advocacy on, like, social media. And uh, after more stuff happened, I realized that it was really affecting me to kind of an unbearable degree which is when I decided to pursue treatment but um I don't post as much about it on my personal social medias anymore I kind of reserve that for specific days but you know also we have this Mm -hmm. pod as an outlet that like this is a place where we can talk about these kinds of things yeah so it's kind of healing but I think one thing to know about both of the things we were talking about though is to like listen to your body Yes. I think it's really tough to do that when you either kind of want to escape the reality that my body is breaking again, or you're worried it's, like, in your head. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, listening to your body Mm -hmm. is super, super key to be able to, like, maintain a healthy life. Yeah, like, we've got to learn not to push ourselves, and it's unfortunate, but we have to say no a lot. Yeah, for sure. So, earlier in this episode, Casey and I mentioned that we have different types of HPS. I have type 1, and she has type 3. Also, in our first episode, we mentioned that type 1 develops pulmonary fibrosis, or scarring of the lungs, in the future, and type 3 doesn't. So, we're just going to take a minute to talk about that. So, me knowing that I'm going to probably get lung disease in my life is kind of wild um I think that it is a blessing and a curse to maybe know your own destiny or future but at the same time you have to kind of realize that anyone could die at any point for any reason so even though it feels like maybe I yeah okay I'm gonna die of lung disease maybe prematurely um you know, I I don't know what could happen tomorrow. And, of course, like, we're looking for cures for lung disease. That's kind of, like, a thing that our whole HPS network does. Um, and I'm involved in a bunch of studies. And, you know, I monitor my lungs. And I'm doing what I can. But at this point in my life, I know that if a treatment doesn't come for me, um, you know, that's okay. And I've right now made peace with the fact that yeah later in my life I'm probably gonna get lung disease and it's kind of sad but I know that you know we don't have like basically any control over anything except what we choose to do and so yes I know that when that happens when I'm whether I'm like 28 or 34 or 40 or 48 like Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to grieve it all over again because like even though I had the knowledge then it will be like real yeah (laughs) but 
you know, I'm just gonna do the best that I can with what I have right now. Because that's all we know that we have. Yes. And when it happens, I'm gonna do it on my terms with lots of flair. I'm gonna get stickers yes. for my oxygen tanks. I'm gonna get colored <laughs> cannula tubes, which are the, the oxygen tubes that <laughs> stick into your nose. Yeah. I'm gonna get pretty medical tape. And I also learned a couple years ago that I can like keep my nose piercing in while wearing a cannula. Ooh. And that just like made my life better. Yes. <laughs> That is so, so you. Yeah. So, I mean, people probably think that I'm, like, a ticking time bomb, but truth be told, so is everyone. Yes. No, for sure. You're kind of cutting out, but hopefully... Are you there? Okay. I lost you. Okay. I lost you. Um, So, uh, with type 3, like Cassandra said, my type is not supposed to get the lung disease, and actually type 3 and any of the non-lung disease subtypes of HPS are pretty rare. So most of my friends with HPS have the lung disease subtypes, like pretty Mm -hmm. much all of them, if I'm being honest. So I, you know, through the years have kind of dealt with some survivor's guilt. I kind of feel, I felt funny going to the conference. I felt like, oh, like what I have to say doesn't really even matter. Like I don't, I don't feel the need to even speak because these people are going through way more than I am. Um, But Everyone, luckily, has been so, so, like, supportive of my issues as well, and Cassandra is one of those people, and they're like, no, your health issues are valid as well, but, you know, it is really, sometimes we have a big group circle at one point in the conference, and sometimes I look around the room, and I'm like, what will this room look like in 10 years or 20 years, because, unfortunately, we do lose a lot of people, and there are a lot of people who have had successful lung transplants, Mm -hmm. which is not a complete cure, but we are so grateful and we are looking for a cure, so there's definitely hope. Um, but like Cassandra said, nobody knows when it's their time, and so we can't be living thinking that way. Um, I had a good friend, I'm not gonna say his name just out of respect for like his family and everything, but he had a non-lung disease subtype of HPS, and he was my closest friend with a non-lung subtype. Um, Mm -hmm. And he would text me all the time about survivor's guilt. He really had it bad. Like, he would feel so guilty for these people getting lung transplants when he knew that he probably would not be in that position. And um, when he was in his mid-30s, he actually suddenly died to something unrelated to HPS. It was a health issue, but it was completely unrelated. And it was, like, the biggest, biggest lesson for me, in a Mm -hmm. sense, because you know, this person who had been so guilty with survivor's guilt because he thought he was going to be the one to outlive these other people ended up dying. And it just goes to show me that like, I'm sitting over here thinking, oh, I'm not going to get the lung disease, but I could die before the people who are supposed to get the lung disease. Like, that's just the whole point in life. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't know, like this one guy who was supposed to survive did not. And it really like threw me for a loop <laughs> let me tell you yeah. no that's really tough too i remember Ooh. i remember hearing about that and it was it was so wild because we're used to hearing like oh this person needed a lung transplant and they didn't make it but this that was not the case for him no and it was not a re- at all. it was shocking to the whole community yeah it really really was but it just is such a lesson that nobody ever knows what is going to take them, you know, or when their time is. For sure. So 
we wanted to talk about a little bit about like cures and world our worldview based on having this disease. Um, so, you know, we're not living our whole lives just, you know, waiting for a cure. Like Cassandra said, a cure might not come in our lifetimes. And even though I'm not supposed to get the lung disease, I want a cure just as badly as anyone for all of my friends. Really bad. Mm-hmm. But um, I we're still looking for one. And so I still think that's fine to have that hope, especially for even future generations. So we will leave, you know, our organization in the show notes if you feel inclined to donate because it is we are having a lot of research being done, and it is really exciting. Yeah, there's a lot of really promising stuff on the horizon with, like, gene therapy and stem cell research, and mm-hmm. it's really, really cool. So, you know, it may it may come for me, which could be nice, but it also may come for someone maybe 10 years younger than me, and that's okay. Yeah, um, we feel like pioneers when we're doing our blood samples and stuff, because it's like, we yeah. could be the cure for future generations. It's so wild, and it's kind of a, a cool position to be in, even though we may not actually reap the benefits, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But about worldview, um, I feel like I, I said a lot of it earlier, but at the same time, I think that when you're in your 20s, most people who don't have health issues like to think that they're invincible. You're kind of at your health prime anyway, and people think that they have all this time and we may but we also may not and so I I don't really like bucket list culture I feel like it's just like putting off something that you wish you could do for a later time when really like like we said earlier all we really have control over is what we're doing now and you know, if it's feasible and, you know, financially responsible for you to do what, what's on your bucket list now, you should do it because there's always mm-hmm. going to be a reason not to do it. Like saying eventually means that it may never happen because you don't know what's coming in the future. Um, right. And like, I don't know, I think I've never really thought of myself getting past the age of maybe 40 or 50. I like, I'm like, preparing for the day that I might retire but I know that I may never end up getting to retire so like Mm -hmm. I think getting old actually sounds really scary to me because like (laughs) for so long I've you know since I was a teenager I've kind of known like I might die prematurely so like being being like 70 and saggy honestly (laughs) sounds really sad to me (laughs) no offense to anyone who is older but no offense to anyone who is 70 and saggy. Hey, you rock those sags. <laughs> you rock the sags. <laughs> no, I know, but it's just my frame of mind. Um, yeah. So it's kind of wild, but I know that whatever happens, like, I'm just going to enjoy what I have now. And, like, it's also important to have reasonable expectations and not just, like, do, do, do all these kinds of things because we don't know how much time we have, you know, just take advantage of what opportunities come your way and make the most of it and tell your family you love them (laughs) yes and like when we're faced with these life and death situations at such a young age like our faith really comes into play too um we've talked about that in past episodes but like for us like when you are like facing especially for you cassandra like when you're facing head on death you know it makes you put those things into perspective and think about it more Mm -hmm. than maybe another person would And so, like, I think my faith gets me through even just watching my friends go through these life and death situations. 
-hmm. it really really puts things into perspective for me and and gets me through it yeah yeah it's it's just peaceful to know that yeah even if I die prematurely I have a faith that I'm going to go to somewhere that's immeasurably better with Mm -hmm. like a being that is ultimately perfect and my body won't own me anymore and that's like a beautiful thought (laughs) right it's a beautiful thought to be free of like aches and pains and the ailments of this world for sure it really is you've been a part of even though you're not in the lung disease subtypes like you've been part of the community so long that hearing about this is like sort of normalizing death to you more than the average person your age anyway 100 percent. i'm seeing it like every Mm -hmm. year we lose a few people like i see it you know in my face yeah for sure but that's most of what we wanted to say but we did want to end on a game (laughs) a game you know us we gotta end on a game um so this game is we thought we've been in the hospital both of us quite a few times and there are just these really funny hospital moments that are like universally funny to everybody that's been in the hospital so we hope if you've ever been in the hospital or had a family or friend in the hospital that you can relate to some of these funny moments so let's just go back and forth and share them i know it's not it's not really a game <laughs> to share funny moments but I feel it like is most like most of it's our like a, games like aren't games <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, it's kind of like a rapid fire. Do you have has this happened to you? That's the yeah. game, kind of, you know. Um, so, laying in your hospital bed, and they have the TV on, but you cannot watch the TV because you can't see it. <laughs> you know, I watched like in the 2015 when I was in and out of the hospital. I watched like a whole lot of TLC, and I was there yeah, just like listening to it. Pretty yeah, much. just listening to TLC though, and it was funny because. Yeah. I was confused when in May, earlier in the month, and then later in the month, I was like, huh, I wonder where 19 Kids and Counting went. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so getting woken up at 4 a.m. to a nurse either taking your blood Uh. pressure or drawing blood. (laughs) The war, you're like, it's like such hospital culture. You'll be like asleep, and they just, at 3 in the morning, they'll come in, they'll turn the lights on, they like, they're talking loudly, like they're acting like it's not even nighttime. It's the most bizarre thing. Like, how you doing? And I'm just, like, sleeping. Yeah. Like, they're not even trying to not wake you. I mean, they're, like, poking your arm, so I guess they need to wake you. Um, Okay. Your doctor's at the hospital blaming just everything that's ever happened on HPS and or Googling HPS in the room right in front of you because both of those things happen. I love it when they walk in and they openly admit, I just Googled your disease. Yeah, they do that (laughs) all the time. That's a funny one. Um, the wide range of quality in hospital food. You know, I don't mind it. What was the best thing you ate in a hospital? Do you remember? Oh, I really don't remember. I feel like the mashed potatoes are usually on point. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) The hospital I always stay at, the place is called Willow's Cafe. (laughs) And I'm a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, so that's how I remember the name. But, you know, good old Willow's Cafe. (laughs) Never lets me down. I like thinking of... Of Buffy Willow owning a cafe. Yeah, owning a hospital, a hospital cafe specifically. <laughs> What's your favorite hospital food? Um, a lot of when I was really hospitalized, I was in the uh, children's hospital, so they would have like personal pan pizzas that were actually Yum. very good. So, 
Yum. <laughs> okay, next one is getting bruises all over your arms from all the IVs. Oh my god. Yeah. My I'm... arms are like purple <sighs> when I leave the hospital. Well, and like they would when they'd have to take my blood to check my levels periodically, like they would just go to my fingers, but then they'd like circle back around to previous fingers and I was just like so like I couldn't use my hands. <laughs> it was just yeah, so yeah, sad. Exactly. <laughs> um Pushing the nurse call button to tell them that your machine was beeping. Oh, every day. Oh, my gosh. Every hour. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It was, it was always like when they walked out of a room, your machine started beeping. You're like, ah. Yes. Every freaking time. I love that one. Um, okay. Weird gift shop gift shop gifts that people just like buy you out of the yes! gift shop. And, yeah. like, and it's just like the most random hodgepodge of things. Oh my, oh my gosh. Also, between the children's hospital and then I was in like the university hospital. So and and that's ended up it was funny because that's where I went to college. But you know, before I was in college, I was in their hospital. Um mm. And so I got a like a lot of Ohio State paraphernalia that people oh. would buy at the gift shops, and it was like, oh, school nice. spirit. <laughs> oh. Um, having well-meaning visitors that stay for way too long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, these people like, like the thing is, like you feel like you need to entertain them when they stay way too long, but you feel no. like crap, so you're like. Could you leave, please? But you don't want to be rude. And, like, oh to be gosh. clear, you know, it, it really does mean a lot when people visit you when you're in the hospital. Oh, yeah. It can brighten up your day. Right. And, like, you know, a lot of those people probably drove for a while to be there. But at the same time, like, I'm in pain, and I don't want to show you that I'm in pain because you'll be uncomfy, but I also want to go back to bed, and I want to ask <laughs> yeah. the nurse for, like, some oxycodone because I'm dying here. And the, re- the reason I want to go back to bed is because the nurse came in the room five times while I was sleeping. <laughs> or when a guest comes, and they, like, that's right when they wheel you out of the room for something. Yes! Like, right when a person comes. Yeah, it's really... And then they have to awkwardly wait on you, like, an hour so come back, but. And then you're you're ready to like see your whoever. Usually it was my parents that were in the room, so I'm like ready to complain to my dad, and like there's a person there, and I'm like, oh surprise! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually don't have any more. I think I did all of mine. Oh okay. Do you I have think, another? I also really liked it when people brought balloons though, because balloons make me oh, very happy that's so nice. as a person. Yes. My yes, last one though absolutely. was having. Like a nurse that, do you remember ever having like a specific nurse that just made you feel really special? Yes, yes. I loved, I never was like jiving with the doctors as much, but the nurses were like great. Do you have a story, like a good nurse story? (laughs) Oh man, not that I can think of. I just overall remember them being like super kind. Yeah, yeah. I did like, when I was like in the middle of a lot of stuff and they had done like the last colonoscopy I ever got um the nurse that was in the room was just so kind and she was like you know you need to make the decision that's best for you and it like just was so special it was Aww. so nice that she said that to me but made the dif- made that's all the so difference. sweet yes <laughs> so 
thank you for coming everyone to our big episode (laughs) thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed it follow us on all the socials as we always say our instagram twitter and facebook or send us an email at hello at rarewithflare.com join us in another two weeks for some more fresh content (laughs) yes fresh content (laughs) love you guys Bye. bye